John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to know that someone as great, someone as unstoppable and as powerful as Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is the one who's gone to prepare a place for us, his people, and many others that we've not yet met. How certain it is that if he goes to prepare a place for us, that he will do what he said. He'll come again, and he'll receive us unto himself, and we'll be with him. What a joy it is, Father. I pray as Tom brings us the word today, Lord, that we would together rejoice in such a great future, secured by such a great one as the Son of the living God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I was going to go all the way through verse 6, and then I ended up coming to the conclusion that verses 4 through 6 that talk about Jesus being the way are very, very strongly connected with what comes right after that about Jesus being the revelation of the Father. So I'm going to put all that together. And that's great because these three verses are uh, just astounding. The Latin phrase sine qua non literally translated means without which not. It refers to something which, if taken out of the picture, leaves you with no picture. Our passage this morning is the sine qua non of our eternal destiny as children of God. The very point of the place in which we who belong to Jesus Christ will spend eternity. This is going to be one of those unity of Scripture messages in which I get carried away and give you much more information than you can write down. So don't try. If you want the detail, write to Belen or me and we'll email you the PowerPoint. And if you want my manuscript, you can have that too. It's got lots of highlighting in it that you'll have to filter through. But What I'm asking you to do this morning is put your pens and electronic keyboards away and just listen. And listen attentively. My prayer is that when you walk away from here this morning, the hope, the hope that is the anchor of your soul will be more clear to you, more real to you, and more transforming to you. When you think about the life that's coming after this life, what is it to which you are most looking forward? Perhaps some of you are looking forward to finally being reunited with a, a beloved spouse or parent or maybe even a child who preceded you into the presence of God. Maybe you're looking forward to the end of Constant financial worries. Or to the final end of a relentless illness that you've been struggling with for many, many years. Some of you, perhaps even some in this room, are eagerly waiting for the day when you will no longer be the victim of an abusive relationship. Maybe you're just weary in general of living in a world that's filled with 
so much injustice and harshness and pain. You're eager to finally be in a place that is actually peaceful and beautiful. And it's not wrong for you to desire any of those things. In fact, Revelation 21.4 tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, God Himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. All those things will have passed away. See, the end of the curse will bring about the end of everything connected with the curse. And that's all exceedingly good. But brothers and sisters in Christ, God has given us an infinitely more valuable promise than any of those. The promise upon which all of those depend. The promise without which none of those things will ever happen. If this one promise were taken out of the picture, heaven would not be heaven. And it certainly would not be worth the price that God paid to bring us to heaven. Many long-time believers in Christ can quote Revelation 24 from memory. Many of us have heard it time and time again at funerals and such. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you without looking, can tell me the promise in the verse just before this one. Revelation 21.3 presents the preeminent blessing that makes all other blessings pale by comparison. Are you ready for it? Here it is. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He shall dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. If that is not the first and overwhelmingly foremost thing that comes to your mind when you think of your eternal destiny, then it's as if you're looking at a a treasure map that points to the greatest treasure ever known and you're missing the big X in the middle of the map because you're so intrigued by all the other pretty lines. My title for this message and the previous one and the next one is Going Where Jesus Went. Last Sunday in part one, Jesus set before His disciples, John 13.33-14.1, through 14, 1, the short-term destination to which He is taking all who belong to Him. And that date, that destination is a life laid down to love others as Christ has loved us. And that especially applies to laying down our lives for those who are of the household of God. And that applies now. Right now, this side of glory, Jesus calls us as His beloved children to follow Him into that sacrificial love toward others that He poured out on us. This morning is part two of going where Jesus went. In John 14, 1-3, and yes, I'm aware that I put verse 1 in both of those sections. 
Jesus reveals to his disciples and to us the long-term destination to which he is taking all who belong to him. This morning is all about following Jesus to his Father's place. Verse 1 that I put in both the passages is the powerful hinge in this passage between how we must follow Christ now into his sacrificial love and how we will follow him later into his Father's very presence. The command in that one verse, John 1.14, is the foundation upon which all of our following depends. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Trust in Me. We cannot follow Jesus anywhere unless we are trusting in Him. And that requires humility. Which I believe is exactly why Jesus was strategically humbling these eleven men who were gathered with Him in this upper room. With the simple call to trust in Him set before them, Jesus now reveals to these disciples the very most marvelous promise that He has given to all who believe in the Son. The promise, beloved, that changes absolutely everything about how you and I live right now. That promise is that we will spend all of eternity together with the Almighty God who created us dwelling right in our midst. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is our sustaining hope. This is the anchor of our souls. This is heaven's glory. You and I together living in perfect relationship and fellowship with our triune God. Our destination is a place forever in God's own house. Now some old translations render the first half of verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. That's a holdover from an archaic Latin usage of a word that actually means rooms, not great big ornate mansions that are separate from one another. The original Greek word here simply means a permanent dwelling place. A place where you take up residence and stay. The picture here is of many rooms in one big house. Have you ever been to a bed and breakfast where you and the other guests staying in the house have breakfast together and you're served by the host who owns the house? That's actually a really good analogy for what's going on here. It's insufficient, but it's, it's, it matches up in many ways. Except that in the house to which Jesus will welcome us, both the hosts and our fellow guests will be so unspeakably great that 
we'll never get weary of having breakfast with them. In fact, being together with them will be the very thing that makes the place so wonderful. And that brings us to the next attribute of this promised place. It's a place forever in God's own house and it's personal. It's very, very personal. Beloved, if you hear nothing else that comes from my mouth this morning, please hear this. Listen. Listen with hearts laid bare before God to how deeply personal this promise is to the One who is making it. Think about what the Lord of glory is saying to you here. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. When Jesus comes back, it will not be to escort into, escort us into a beautiful place He's prepared for us to live without Him. Heaven would not be heaven if that were the case. Jesus is coming back to receive us, all of us, whom He bought with His own poured out blood, all of us together to Himself. So that where He is, there we will be as well. Our eternal destination is a place together with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Bride. Jesus did not give His life so you and I could spend eternity in separate mansions. So we could move out of our temporary little castles with our push-button operated electronic drawbridges, you know, from Genie and Sears and Chamberlain, and our moats full of digital alligators into bigger, better castles where we could insulate ourselves from each other forever. If that sounds like a great way to spend eternity you probably won't like the real thing. Jesus is saying, my little children, I am preparing a place for you in my Father's house where He and I will live together with all of you forever. And if you keep reading in this very chapter, you cannot avoid the conclusion that wherever the Father and the Son are, there the Holy Spirit is as well. Our triune God is not divided. In fact, this chapter will tell us later that because the Holy Spirit dwells in you now, the Father and the Son dwell in you also. And when Jesus brings you into His Father's dwelling place, you're going to live forever with all the saints, with our Trinitarian God camped right in the middle of that dwelling place. The point of the place is the presence of the persons and the people. How's that for alliteration? The point of the place is the presence of the three persons of the triune God and of the people of God. Living together forever. This is deeply personal. It is entirely about relationship. Beloved, this is about God welcoming us into the perfection of love 
and unity and communion and fellowship that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed from eternity past. It's about Him drawing us into that in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to think about that. It's astounding. You and I will never have a right concept of heaven. We will never experience the real hope, which is the birthright of every redeemed child of God, if we do not come to understand that the promise of heaven is the promise of relationship. Personal, life-defining relationship with God and with each other forever. You might be thinking, then, then why all this talk about a glorious place with Streets made of gold. Well, this is really, really important. So permit me to take a few minutes to make sure that we're seeing this rightly. And by rightly, I mean biblically. Throughout the Bible, God's promise of a place for His people is all about the inhabitants of that place. That is so true that in the Bible, the distinction between the place and the people is strategically and intentionally blurred. So, it kind of ceases to be a distinction. Let me show you what I'm talking about. When God speaks of the place, He's speaking of its inhabitants. And when we speak of the place, that's what we should be talking about. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel the promise of the land. And he called that land their inheritance that he would give to his covenant people. The land was Israel's inheritance. But for those in Israel who knew God, those who were actually related to God by faith, the promise of the land was utterly meaningless apart from the infinitely greater promise that God himself would dwell in that land together with them. I could show you dozens of Old Testament passages, dozens of them, to demonstrate that great truth of God's Word. But since I don't have time to do that, I'll show you one. And this passage beautifully weaves together into a single tapestry the promise of place and person. Psalm 16 which is actually a psalm of Messiah that David wrote a thousand years before Messiah came. It says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in Thee. I said to the Lord, and that's Yahweh, Thou art my Lord. I have no good besides Thee. And in the very next breath, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Now, according to those verses, if we treat David as the speaker, what is David's only good? Is it a place? No, he says, my only good is you, God. And what is his entire delight? Is it a place? No. It's those who are in the land. It is the people of God who dwell in the land. And notice, by the way, that there's no contradiction between him saying, God, you are all my good and your people are all my delight. 
We'll see why that's true a little later in the Gospel of John, specifically in John 17. Just two verses later in this great psalm, David says this. This is really amazing. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. And then he says, Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. The word portion there doesn't mean part of my inheritance. It means the full measure of my inheritance. So what is David's inheritance? Is it a place? No, he says his entire inheritance is Yahweh. And then without taking a breath, David speaks in terms that applied to the division of the land, the promised land. In the book of Numbers, when the land was parceled out between the tribes and clans and families of Israel, the boundaries were determined and then the lands, the land was divided according to the casting of lots. And so David says, God, you have supported my lot. The lines, the boundaries have fallen to me in pleasant places. My heritage, my inheritance is beautiful to me. But what did he just say his inheritance is? God. The land was just a picture. The land was the place in which God would dwell in the midst of His people. The land meant nothing to David apart from the one who would live with the people of God in that land. Are you with me? David seamlessly moves from speaking of the inhabitants of the promised land to speaking of the, of the place as if the two are one. That's because in the mind of God, they are. Now fast forward in the progress of God's revelation to the last book of the Bible, in fact, the last few pages of your Bible, in Revelation 21. As John the Apostle beholds a marvelous vision of a new heaven and a new earth, what does John see coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband? He sees a city. The holy city, New Jerusalem coming down uh, out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. You know what that word made ready is? It's the same word that Jesus uses when He says, I go to prepare to make ready a place for you. See, when He comes back, He's bringing it with Him. The place that He's been preparing. But how is it that He refers to the city as the bride? Isn't the church the bride? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, but stick with me for a minute. Later in this same chapter of Revelation, he does this again, when an angel says to John, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. What is it that the angel shows to John? He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And here's the kicker. Having the glory of God. Having the glory of God. Like the tabernacle. Like the temple. Like you. 
indwelled by God who has taken up residence there. According to Peter's first letter to the churches, what are the stones from which God is constructing His spiritual household? Us. According to Paul in Ephesians 2, out of what is God building a holy temple in the Lord? You know what the temple is? The temple is the dwelling place of God. Out of what is God building His dwelling place? Jews and Gentiles who have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. He's building His holy temple out of us. You see what I'm talking about when I say the distinction between the place and the persons is blurred in the Bible? From beginning to end in the Bible. God's own eternal dwelling place with His people, God's temple is made of God's people. And our eternal dwelling place is defined by the presence of God. See, it's all about the inhabitants of the place. Now that doesn't mean there's no physical reality to the place. Don't get me wrong. Every word of the Bible's description of the amazing, incomparable place that God, that Jesus Christ has prepared for us is going to be on display when we enter into the real thing. But beloved, it will not be the streets of gold that make it heaven. It will be the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and the Bride. So why is it taking so long for Jesus to make the place ready? Do we really think that it takes more than 2,000 years for God who spoke the whole universe into existence to spruce up His dwelling place so that it will be ready for the likes of us? I don't think so. If you want to know why the long delay... Read 2 Peter chapter 3. It'll tell you exactly why the long delay. And you know what it's all about? It's all about the people who will inhabit the place. God's not finished populating His city. Beloved, this is deeply personal to God and it must be deeply personal to us. Our hope is that we will live together forever with God and the people of God. I can get excited about that. I don't know about you. This is a very, very old promise. And let me say this again before I go to that. (laughs) Here's the sine qua non of heaven. The point of the place is the presence of the persons and the people. The persons of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the people of God. Living together forever. That's the sine qua non. Without that, it's not heaven. All right, this is a, this is a very old promise. Before God's create, go all the way back to the beginning. Before God's creation was corrupted by our sin, God Himself walked in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Genesis 3, verse 8. As God's agents and image bearers went about their God-given assignment to do God's work, God's way, in God's creation, before the fall, their relationship to God was sort of like that of a tradesman's son working in his father's shop. With his father lovingly, faithfully leading, teaching, 
mentoring him in his work, each enjoying the company and the fellowship of the other. When that was the state of affairs, everything that man did, he did in perfect harmony, loving fellowship, and personal face-to-face communion with his Creator. See, that's God's blueprint, His design for mankind and creation. Ever since the fall, God has been faithfully at work to restore and renew that design. And very soon, it will be that way again and forever. It'll even be better for all who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. His ever-present promise to His people in His Word from start to finish is, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. All four of the major Old Testament covenants include this promise. The first declaration of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 is the promise of land, seed, and blessing. The promised land descendants, and blessing. God said to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. Through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land. Of, the, of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You see in that promise the land, the seed, and the blessing. I will be their God. Now, at that point, the, the idea that God would dwell right in the midst of His people is not yet mature, it's not yet fleshed out, but... In the Mosaic Covenant, there's this amazing passage in Exodus 29. It's all about the continual burnt offering. And God is talking about the tabernacle. He's talking to Israel about the tabernacle. And here's what He says. He says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by My glory. That means My indwelling presence. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt to do what? To dwell with them. The tabernacle and later the temple were earthly pictures that came from the mind of God Pictures of the eternal, heavenly reality of men drawing near to the very presence of God dwelling in their midst. The temple worship was all about God pitching His tent, His tabernacle, right in the center in the focal point of the camp of Israel. All of the tribes were arranged around that focal point. Beloved, Jesus is the substance of that symbol. He is the perfect tabernacle. You remember John 1.14? Not 14.1, but 1.14? And the Word became flesh. (laughs) And the Word 
tabernacled among us. That's the literal word there. And the word tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God camped out in the midst of His people. I'm going to look at the last two major covenants together because when we get to Ezekiel here in just a second, Ezekiel brings the Davidic covenant in together with the new covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God spoke to King David through the prophet Nathan and He said to him, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, seed, singular, just like with Abraham, after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish His singular kingdom. He shall build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Now here's where people have problem. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rods of men and the strokes of the sons of men. And people say, well, that can't be talking about Christ. Guys, go look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus didn't just bear our penalty. He bore our guilt at the cross. And God looked upon him and saw everything that he despised in that instant. I can't even begin to comprehend that. But this promise is talking about Jesus. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, David, through that person. Your throne shall be established forever. But but David died. And and all the descendants of David who reigned on the throne of Judah after him died. Except one. There's one king in the line of David who still and forever lives. And he's going to come back and claim his own. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And he is going to rule over all of his creation. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, look at how God through the prophet Ezekiel. This passage just rocks my world. How he beautifully ties that promise of the king whose dominion would last forever to the promise of God's dwelling place in the midst of his people. Ezekiel. God speaking through the prophet says, Say to them, Israel and Judah, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And there will no longer be two nations, Israel and Judah. They will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. (laughs) But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. All those corrupted dwelling places. And I will cleanse them. And they will be My people. And I will be their God and my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. 
And they will walk in my statutes and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them... I will place them and I will multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. You think this is important to God? He's been talking about it for 3,500 years. He wrote about it over a period that spanned 1,500 years through dozens of men. And he just talked about it over and over and over. Guys, if you think this is the sum total of the revelation in the Bible that applies to God dwelling in the midst of His people, think again. We could do this all day. Revelation 21.3 I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and He shall dwell among them. And they shall be His people and God Himself shall be among them. And Jesus said, In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. The perfect Davidic King who will reign over all creation will welcome us into His house with His Father and the Spirit to live forever. Unless you have no pulse, Your heart longs for blessed fellowship and relationship just like mine does. I was thinking, slight aside here, I was thinking if if you were driving through upstate New York and you'd never heard of Niagara Falls and you just kind of stumbled onto it and you got out of your car and you stood there and you watched the majesty and the awe of of that spectacle of that place, and you were by yourself, what would be the first thing that you would want to do? Well, if you're me, you'd get out your your iPhone and you'd start taking pictures and sending them to all the people that you cared about. You'd want to share it. See, God made us for relationship. But He made us for relationship with Him and with His people. That's what He remade us for. That's what He gave us new birth for. That's what drives His people. If all this is dry to you, if it doesn't make you sit in awe of the gift that God has promised to the children of God, I don't know what to tell you. Beloved, this is eternal life that they may know Thee, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. This is eternal life to dwell together with God's people in the very presence of God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Spirit in perfect love and unity and fellowship and communion forever. In closing, I just want to take us briefly back to that hinge verse in John 14.1, that simple, profound exhortation upon which all of our following of Jesus depends. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Here on this very last day that Jesus had with these eleven men before He went to the cross, He said many things to them that they did not want to hear and did not understand. He was calling them very strategically to trust in Him alone. In fact, He was showing them that trusting in themselves was a fool's errand. See, faith demands humility. Every word that Jesus spoke to His disciples in that upper room, He spoke because He loved them. He loved His own who were in the world and He loved them to the uttermost. There is a very good reason why Jesus left His disciples so perplexed on this particular evening. See, they didn't understand why the King of Kings would get down on the floor and do the lowly work of a maidservant in washing their feet, their dirty feet. They didn't understand. This man, who was like no one they had ever met or heard of, whom they had faithfully followed for three years, told them he was about to leave them behind and go to a place where they could not go. And they did not understand. He told them one of them would betray him. And then he told Peter that he, Peter, would deny him three times before dawn. And they did not understand. They were perplexed and troubled and confused. And then he told them he was going to prepare a place for them and that he would come back to receive them to himself. But they didn't understand. Their heads were spinning, their hearts were troubled, and they would become troubled beyond measure no more than just been a few hours later when Judas handed Jesus over to the men who would mock Him and hand Him over to the Romans to be tortured and spat upon and sent to a death more agonizing than any man or woman or child can even conceive of. I don't know if there had ever been a more perplexed group of people in the history of mankind than these 11 men were that night and the next day. The next day when heaven and earth trembled at the sight of the Lord of glory nailed to a cross. But here was Jesus' gracious and merciful and incomparably loving exhortation to these men. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Your life during the very brief time that you have to spend here under the curse will be filled with many, many things that you don't understand. Every vestige of your self-dependence screams out to you saying, you have to understand it if you're going to believe it. But the giver of life calls out to you and He says to you, 
You're the creature, and I'm the creator. Forsake your pride. Forsake your self-reliance. Forsake your self-acquired understanding. You understand nothing apart from me. Trust in me with all your heart and bail out on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me and I will direct your steps all the way into my Father's house forever. If you're here and you've spent your time thus far on this earth lost in the dark, trust in Jesus and be pulled out of the darkness into His astonishing light. And if you've already made that blessed transition into into His light, but you find yourself still stumbling, the prescription is exactly the same. Trust in Jesus, He will lead you in the everlasting way. He will bring you into all truth. He will personally return from glory to escort you into the place of true and eternal life, the eternal dwelling place of God Himself. Nothing can keep you from that unspeakable blessing if you simply trust in Jesus. Dear Father, humble us under Your mighty hand. Grant us the simple childlike faith that is willing to confess that we don't understand anything that matters until You bring us into that understanding. Humble us to stop looking around here for our hope and to look only to the promise and the promiser. Our one hope, our one inheritance, our very great reward is to dwell with You, with the Holy Spirit, with the the glorious Son of God and His Bride forever. Father, make that our one true hope. Make that all that we long for and desire. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.